not sure if I've said this before on the show, so if I have, forgive me. But the very first time I ever played in England was opening for Guy Clark at the Sage in Gateshead. It's a beautiful theater, a couple thousand people. The show just went great. And to this day, it's one of my favorite gigs I've ever played. It's very special to me. But at Soundcheck, I'd never met Guy Clark before. And I was a huge fan. I was really looking forward to just getting to stand around him and watch him a little bit. I sat out. I'm the only person out in the audience during the sound check. Anybody who's sat through a Guy Clark sound check will tell you that it's quite the ordeal. It seemed like the sound check went on for about an hour. Guy would tell the sound guy, turn it up till it squeals. And then he'd turn it up and start squealing. And then the sound guy would turn it back down. And Guy would say, I didn't tell you to turn it back down. So he'd turn it back up, it starts squealing, and then Guy said, okay, now make it stop squealing. And then the sound guy, all confused, rushed around and tried to figure all that out. Like I said, this went on for about an hour, maybe more. And when he was finally done, he looked over at me sitting there in one of the little theater seats and said, uh, are you the opening act? And I jumped up. Yes, sir, Mr. Clark. Uh, he says, what's your name? I said, my name's Otis. It's very nice to meet you. He said, where are you from? I said, I'm from Wanamaker, Indiana. He looked me dead in the eye, looked completely unimpressed. He said, I've been to a lot of places in my life, but I ain't never been there. He turned around and he walked off stage. And I just stood there with a stupid grin on my face thinking, man, I just met Guy Clark. friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Sean Camp. Sean is a singer, a songwriter, a producer, a multi-instrumentalist, and just an all-around great musician and great guy. You can find out everything you need to know about Sean at seancamp.com. I asked Sean if he'd be willing to share some stories about his friend Guy Clark. And he was nice enough to invite me over to his home here in Nashville. We sat at a kitchen table. It's kind of in a dining room area. There's a lot of reflective surfaces in there, so there's a little bit of reverb in the background. I apologize for that. But I really enjoyed talking with Sean. He shared just a bunch of really great stories and opened up. And after we recorded this, we started talking about more stuff. And uh, I had asked him about the Chris Christopherson song, To Beat the Devil, I was wondering where the bar that Chris Christopherson stepped inside of on Music Row, just what that bar was, and Sean actually knew. He said it was the Tally Ho. So we got in his truck, and he drove me over to Music Row and showed me where the Tally Ho used to be. 
That's a question I've had for 25 years, and it's nice to have it answered. He gave me a tour of Music Road that let me look at it in a way that I'd never quite seen it before. Just a great guy, and I really enjoy being around Sean. I'm a big Guy Clark fan, and I know there's a lot of you out there listening to this show, so I hope you appreciate this as much as I did. Here's Sean Camp. Well, uh, in the early 90s, I was on uh, uh, Warner Brothers, you know, Warner Reprise Records, and uh, doing like a country, you know, trying to make a modern commercial country records, you know. I guess they knew they were in trouble when they they, they asked me if there's anybody in the world that I wanted to write with, who, who would I want to write with? I said, Guy Clark right off the bat. <laughs> and it's like, so that was my, you know, my focal point of that style, you know, of, was my hope to, to write with him. And, and before I knew it, I was sitting in front of him across from his uh, old barnwood tabletop desk that he had made and trying to make up a song, you know, and uh, uh, freaked out, you know. But uh, he, he was a pretty intimidating character, you know. Did he have any idea who you were at all? No, but uh, he was welcoming to me, you know, and he and he was that way about the welcoming young songwriters or artists in uh, the entire time I I knew him. You know, he was always bringing in new new kids that I didn't know even. You know that uh, he was willing to sit there and spend all day for some young idea to walk in the room basically you know i think you know and and when he got done with a song every song he ever wrote that i've ever heard sounded just like guy clark no matter who he wrote it with you know the first song we wrote is on my second album on warner brothers which never came out for like 16 or 17 years it laid on the shelf because i got sideways with the label and eventually befriended the new president of warner brothers and he wanted to put that record out. So uh, uh, it's a song called Cowcatcher Blues, and uh, that's the first thing we wrote together. And uh, I'm awful proud of that song. It's a neat little tune. Uh, we just got to talking, which is kind of the way I approach co-writing and kind of just kind of bullshit my way into it, actually. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, you just get to talking until a subject uh, kind of sounds like you need to write it. My uncle, Carl Riley, in, in Little Rock, was working for a, a construction company called Kenco, and uh, Jack Kinnerman owned Kenco. Well, every Christmas party every year, they hired Guy Clark because Guy Clark was Jack Kinnerman's uh, favorite songwriter and entertainer ever that took a breath, you know. <laughs> So he he brought him to ta- brought him to Little Rock every year, and he brought Verlin Thompson, and they played at the Christmas show every year at the Christmas party. And my uncle said, "Hey, you know, uh, my nephew Sean Kemp writes with Guy and uh, hangs out with him. Why don't you have Guy Clark bring Sean over and for the Christmas party?" And so they 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 put that on Guy to bring me, <laughs> and uh, I'm sure he was thinking, "Why me?" Why am I doing this? And anyway, I went over there and played the show with him, and 
it it just clicked, you know. And I mean, I was friends with those guys with Verlin Thompson and Guy, and uh, from that point on, I, I worked a lot of different shows with them off and on, you know. So I'm thankful to uh, grateful to my uncle Carl Riley for uh, conning Jack Kinnerman into calling. Guy Clark and conning him into bringing me to Little Rock, playing my hometown. <laughs> well, what was expected of someone who played with Guy? What would be the parameters of the gig, or was it ever even discussed? No, not really. There was no rehearsal. Guy didn't believe in rehearsing at all, or you know, it was just it's re. It was always real. It was just it just happened, and it and it. However, it fell out there was uh, the way it was supposed to be, you know. And uh, that's that's what I loved about Guy. It was a he was just such a a real character, you know. Even though those songs were whittled out and crafted, you know, to perfection, every time he did it, he he would do one. It would just sound like it was just it was that moment, you know. He he lived in the moment of the song. That was probably the worst part of the day. <laughs> Guy Clark's sound checks, and for, especially if you were a sound man trying to trying to help Guy get his his monitors set and his microphone right, he just always would walk out there and say, "Turn turn all the mains off. Turn my monitor on. Turn this mic up till it squeals." And. Uh, <laughs> He'd, and he'd, he'd turn it up, and he'd test, one, two, test, and it would squeal. And he would say, okay, turn it down just a little. And I don't know. and it, I don't know. But it, he was just always, he would wring his ears out every day at, at sound check. And he was gruff to people that didn't really know him and uh, didn't understand his uh, Guy Clark thing. <laughs> you know, you would think he was not a very nice guy, but uh, but he was really a, a great guy. I opened for him first gig I ever played in England at yeah. the Sage in Gateshead, and uh, it was exactly that at Soundcheck, and it took yeah. about an hour, hour and a half. Yeah, it was amazing. It was fun to watch. It would be terrible to be the sound man. <laughs> I kind of wish that uh, someone had uh, videoed and documented as many of those sound checks as they they could have possibly got. <laughs> you know, that would just be wonderful to to see him go through a few of those on a on a TV screen. You know. I, when I was on Warner Brothers in the early '90s, I had a bunch of swag printed up with a bunch of T-shirts made to sell on the road, you know, and most of them were like pink XXLs. <laughs> That's, you know, that said, Sean, had my name on it, Sean Camp, and I'm standing there in a silhouette, you know, uh, holding the guitar. And <laughs> I mean, people used to buy them back in the 90s, and I ran across this box of them, you know, and uh, I put them in the truck. And went to uh, guys and thought I would. I took one in to uh, Joy Brogdon, who was Guy Clark's girlfriend at the end, you know, and uh, gave her one. And, and Guy said, 
you got one in black. He took a big drag. Of, you got one of them in black out there. So, yeah, I'll go see, you know. And I went out to the box and couldn't find it. I came back in. Man, I, I thought I had a black T-shirt out there, but I don't have it. He said, well, I like pink. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I went back out there and found him a pink one. And uh, and uh, every time I'd come over there, he had it on. He was wearing it. One, one time I went over. Uh, soon after, got there a little early and got him up out of bed. He's wearing that T-shirt. It just blew my mind, you know. His hair's going crazy, and I took a couple of snapshots of him. One of these days, I'm going to blow it up and make a poster out of it. <laughs> it was kind of a such a contrast seeing Guy Clark in a, it's like John Wayne in a pink T-shirt. You know? But he wore it all the time. Uh, Verlin Thompson fell off a ladder uh, and broke both of his wrists and some vertebrae in his neck. He was out of commission for a while, and and Guy had a two-week tour. He just, you know, called me, and I was available and fell in with him and, and kind of took Guy's, I mean, Verlin's place while he was recuperating. So that was like the most... Uh, side man kind of thing I ever did with him, you know, uh, when Verlin was out of the picture. Most of the stuff I did uh, with Guy and Verlin and just kind of did my little thing around what they do, you know. So, uh, Well, if you're in the car with Guy, are you listening to music? I never heard him turn a radio on in a, in a, in a rental car. We'd fly in. I'll tell you, we went to, uh, we played in Red Rocks one time out in Colorado and flew into Denver. And Guy was booked to uh, open Lyle Lovett's show. And Lyle was looking for a fiddle player. And Guy had been bragging to Lyle about how good a fiddle player I was, you know. So he took me out there to play you know, on, on his show so Lyle could sit in the wings and listen to me play. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we fly into Denver. And Guy rents this brand-new, you know, uh, Lincoln Town car. I mean, it's top of the line, brand-new. It had, like, 40 miles on it or something, you know. And there's a huge drought on out there, and it's like there's signs flashing, you know, do not throw uh, smoking cigarettes out the window, and, you know, do not, you know, be careful with matches, uh, you know. We, we weren't even out of sight of the of the rental car place when he lights up a Winston or something, you know, and, and it's like, Oh man, I, it's a brand new car. He's going to start smoking right off the bat in a car. He's not even supposed to smoke in. <laughs> and, <laughs> so I'm cracking my window back there. He used to always get mad at me for, for, for cracking my window. Cause I, you know, I, I don't like to set, set in a car with cigarette smoke. And, uh, he claimed that if he cracked his just a little bit, that all the smoke would go out out in his way, and it wouldn't even get on me, you know. <laughs> but I was in the seat directly behind Guy, and Verlin was up in the passenger seat, and Guy's driving, and he's dra dragging on this cigarette, big, deep drags, and we weren't five miles down the road, you know, or, or even that far until he flip this cigarette out the window and it comes out the window and it comes back into my window and, and hits me in the chest <laughs> and rolls down between my legs in this new Lincoln. 
And it's like, I, oh my, yeah, hit me with a cigarette. And, I, and everybody's panicking. And he knows that it, it came back in the car, you know, pull over on the shoulder. And this cigarette's lit, rolls in between the crack in the seat and goes behind. We can't find it, disappears. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it was just a big, that was the beginning of the trip, you know. And then we go to Red Rocks. And we're out there standing on these uh, these grates, you know, steel grates on the stage doing sound check, and, and we never could get our sound right. And they had this generator or something or a machine of some kind running underneath us, like just roaring all the time, and we never could hear ourselves, you know. And came time for the show, and, and Lyle's sitting over to the side, and my, I could not fiddle. I, I sounded horrible, you know, scratching around on a fiddle because I – I couldn't hear, and this machine's running under our feet, and we're in this beautiful setting, and guy's just so pissed. He couldn't, he couldn't hear anything. Nobody was listening. Everybody was milling around out there. They all wanted to hear Lyle, you know, and and uh, they just, it was just a bad kind of show. And the guy was just that was a that was a, uh, a bad bad night. <laughs> <laughs> a rough drive back to the airport. Yeah, it was a little bit quiet on the ride back to the hotel. Some of them he loaned out to people, and they haven't brought them back to the, you know, uh, to the uh, estate. You know, I think, and some of them he gave away, and maybe the ones he loaned out. He gave away to I don't know you know but uh, he he made some great guitars and uh, quite a few of them are in the possession I think of uh, Joy Brogdon who he left basically everything to they'll find their their place I'm sure but they're all pieces of art man I mean they're amazing sounding guitars and 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 they have really intricate detail to them that. Guy, guy was really uh, the same way with building a guitar or a song or, or painting a picture or the his handwriting was just perfect you know I mean it was a just a really concise kind of cat you know I mean everything he did he did it the way he wanted to do it and he had a there was a definitive guy Clark fingerprint and I mean that was the label on his guitar you know the, the label he put inside his guitar, I remember him making labels. And he would uh, write write his name in a, with India ink, you know, Guy Clark, number one or number 10 or whatever the guitar number was in the label, poke his finger, get a bunch of blood on the end of his thumbprint, you know, poke his thumb, and, and that thumbprint would, of blood is the label on Guy Clark's guitar, his own blood, you know. It's it's the it's a beautiful thing, man. <laughs> Do you know how many guitars he built in his lifetime? You know, I don't know. I think he built a few that <clears throat> he didn't number early on, you know, and when he first started and uh, I think when he started numbering them there's 14 there. There may be an unfinished one or two. In the closet there, he he built flamenco gut strings, and I'm not sure if if those were within the the 14, the serial numbers, or if those were prior to the 14 that he 
built. But he built some really cool gut strings, and then he, he moved into triple O twenty eight Martin style guitars that he was building steel strings, you know. And that's what he played on stage, that that style of guitar. And uh, he loved that, you know. That's kind of like the Jimmy Rogers model. It was hard. It was really, it was uh, hard to see him in that state. You know what I mean? And out there trying to, it was painful to see somebody you loved going through that kind of pain, you know, in the public eye, basically. You know what I mean? It, we played at Merlefest one time. He got to coughing up there on the show. Stuff coming out of his nose and was just like, man, we're going to have to get you off. And he was like, no. And he stayed right up there. And, you know, those those folks that were on, on uh, at that show got a firsthand look at what truth really was for Guy Clark, you know. And he didn't seem to be, you know, I mean, I'm sure it hurt his pride a bit, but there was almost a, a pride involved with him uh, being honest about where he was at to his fans. You know, uh, I, I always thought that was really quite a thing to see, you know. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'm sure he had a big satchel full of dope he had to take at all times, you know. And some he was supposed to, some he wanted to, <laughs> you know. <laughs> this might be too personal, but was he making a lot of those gigs there towards the end just because he needed the, the money? Well, I'm sure the medical bills were overwhelming. You know, I mean, he had he fought that stuff for 10 years or more. And he told me for a while there he was taking a shot like once a, every couple of weeks that was $8,000. You know, I mean, it was like he, he was a superstar to me and to you, I'm sure, and, and a lot of folks. But, but you know, it, it, it's kind of relative because he, he, was, he was a class act. But uh, he might not have been knocking down the same money that the guy on the top of the charts was when he played, you know, or his royalty statements couldn't have been like those guys, you know. But I don't know, man. His songs were, to me, worth more than all those put together. Gary Nicholson and I wrote this song. I had this thought about... uh, writing a song for Guy, you know. and uh, So I had this guy, Guy, and it was just kind of, that's the title of it, this guy, Guy. And uh, it's kind of uh, just describes him the best we could in the song. I, we were really excited about about the song when we finished it, and Guy was in the nursing home over here. He was on pain medicine, really heavy, and had had a, had a bad night, I think, the night before, but we went in there with this song to play for him as soon as we got it done, you know, thinking, we're going to take it, and he's going to go, wow, thanks so much, you know. It's really sweet of you guys to, to write a song about me. It's what we were dreaming he would say, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we, get, we play it. It's kind of long, but all these details about guys' life and around the tune of let him roll kind of we get to the end and guys laying there in the bed and he just kind of looks at us says well ain't that just real cute 
Me and Gary just kind of looked at each other like, all right, you know, and guy wasn't in the mood to hang much, and so we left. And, you know, we're out in the parking lot just going, what does that mean exactly? <laughs> then uh, then uh, they, uh, Joy and Guy called me and wanted me to come back and play that song again, and I did. Gary wasn't with me, and, and he, he really loved it then. It was like, I think it was just the, he was just out of his head, you know, on on morphine and pain meds and stuff, you know. But anyway, there's a lot of little little details in that song. I'm proud of that song. The day I walked in there, that, that, uh, on his last day, um, you know, we didn't know it was his last day, but it was uh, it's pretty heavy. You could tell he was. He was checking out, you know, and I walked in there, and he's wearing that pink T-shirt, man, of mine, and uh, uh, said Sean Camp on it. And uh, Rodney Crowell turns to me and says, he kind of laughed and said, man, you're everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Verlin Thompson's there, of course, and Joy Brogdon, who had been his caregiver and girlfriend there towards the end. She really, she really helped him keep on his diabetic schedule and checked him out and helped him probably live a couple of years longer, you know, and, and his, he was in bad shape, had a lot going on, you know, and uh, uh, Emmy Lou was there. I, I, it's kind of a blur. Eric, Eric Dillon was there, I believe, and uh, yeah, Tamara was there. Uh, I, I'm sorry, man. I, maybe Jim McGuire. I can't. It's been. A, it's kind of a blur. It was kind of a weird, surreal, uh, you know, whirlwind of the of a day, kind of. You know, he didn't talk at all that last day. He he tried. You know, uh, Sam Bush was there, and I remember Sam got down and got in his ear and kind of. Woke him up enough to, I mean, he was awake, but he was, you know, he was in his own world. We we left, and so he could go on, you know, so guy could uh, move on to where he needed to go, and at least be at peace because there was so many people around. It kind of was, I think it was annoying him in a way, you know. And uh, so uh, I got a, uh, a text from Verlin, who stayed up all night. And Rodney, I think Rodney was gone. Verlin was there, and Joy stayed all night that night. And uh, and he passed like at four or something in the morning. And, uh, I I didn't get the text till seven thirty or so, and I. I went right over there, and uh, his body was still there. When the coroner came and took him out, and, uh, and uh, me and Verlin and somebody else, might be Eric, I sat there on the bed, and it was the bed was still warm. Where guy passed, you know, it was like. And we played uh, Desperados, waiting for a train. 
And uh, it was a it was a powerful thing, the passing of Guy Clark. Yeah, so we had a one last picnic party over at Jim McGuire's uh, photography studio for Guy, and uh, had his ashes out there and, and his boots, and and we all just gathered around in a circle and played uh, a bunch of Guy Clark songs, and, and uh, his last request was that his ashes be taken to. Uh, his friend Terry Allen out in Santa Fe so Terry could put him in a sculpture. So he's going to be in a bronze sculpture of some kind out there. And uh, uh, Terry's a genius and great artist. So uh, we uh, loaded up in a tour bus, me and Tamara Saviano, uh, Jim McGuire, uh, Steve Earle, Rodney Crowell, Berlin Thompson, and we rode all the way to Santa Fe with Guy's ashes, <laughs> like an eighteen-hour ride. And uh, I think Steve Earle sat up the whole time talking. <laughs> <laughs> I love that dude, man. He keeps it going. It was it was his last ride, you know. It was a good thing. I really appreciate you having me over here and sharing stories. Man, you're always welcome. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'll go look up Tom T. Hall's pool table and see if. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, come over and shoot a game of pool on it with me. All right. All right. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Sean for inviting me over to his home here in Nashville and sharing stories. You can find out everything you need to know about Sean at seancamp.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com and you can pick up a CD, a t-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You could buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment, subscribe, and you'll get a brand new episode free as soon as it's available. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.